Let's turn to God's Word. Genesis 42 is our Old Testament reading tonight. Genesis 42, we'll read the whole chapter. Brothers and sisters, this is the living and abiding Word of God. So let's give it our full attention now. When Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, Jacob said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Indeed, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down to that place and buy for us there, that we may live and not die. So Joseph's ten brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he said, Lest some calamity befall him. And the sons of Israel went to buy grain among those who journeyed, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land, and it was he who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down before him with their faces to the earth. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he acted as a stranger to them and spoke roughly to them. Then he said to them, Where do you come from? And they said, From the land of Canaan to buy food. So Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. Then Joseph remembered the dreams which he had dreamed about them. And he said to them, You are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, No, my lord, but your servants have come to buy food. We are all one man's sons. We are honest men. Your servants are not spies. But he said to them, No, you have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said, Your servants are twelve brothers, sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And in fact, the youngest is with our father today, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, It is as I spoke to you, saying, You are spies. In this manner you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you, and let him bring your brother, and you shall be kept in prison, that your words may be tested to see whether there is any truth in you. Or else, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. So he put them all together in prison three days. Then Joseph said to them the third day, Do this and live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers be confined to your prison house, but you go and carry grain for the famine of your houses and bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, We are truly guilty concerning our brother, for we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us, and we would not hear. Therefore this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, saying, Did I not speak to you, saying, Do not sin against the boy, and you would not listen? Therefore, behold, his blood is now required of us. But they did not know that Joseph understood them, for he spoke to them through an interpreter, and he turned himself away from them and wept. Then he returned to them again and talked with them, and he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. Then Joseph gave a command to fill their sacks with grain, to restore every man's money to his sack, and to give them provisions for the journey. Thus he did for them. So they loaded their donkeys with the grain and departed from there. But as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey feed at the encampment, 
He saw his money, and there it was in the mouth of his sack. So he said to his brothers, My money has been restored, and there it is in my sack. Then their hearts failed them, and they were afraid, saying to one another, What is this that God has done to us? Then they went to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, and told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man who is lord of the land spoke roughly to us and took us for spies of the country. But we said to him, We are honest men, we are not spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father, one is no more, and the youngest is with our father this day in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the lord of the country, said to us, By this I will know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers here with me. Take food for the famine of your households and be gone. And bring your youngest brother to me, so I shall know that you are not spies, but that you are honest men. I will grant your brother to you, and you may trade in the land. Then it happened, as they emptied their sacks, that surprisingly each man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me. Joseph is no more. And you want to take Benjamin. All these things are against me. Then Reuben spoke to his father, saying, Kill my two sons. If I do not bring him back to you, put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is left alone. If any calamity should befall him along the way in which you go, then you would bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. Our New Testament text is 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Just a few verses here from 2 Corinthians 7, verses 8 through 11. The Word of God. For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry though only for a while. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing that you sorrowed in a godly manner, what diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. In all things you prove yourselves to be clear in this matter. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Pray now with me that he might bless it to us. Our gracious God and Father, at the beginning of this Lord's Day, you spoke to us by your word. And now at the close of this Lord's Day, once again, you speak to us by your living and abiding word. Lord, it is sweet to be in your house and sweet to taste the riches of the feast of the gospel. What a rich and glorious feast it is. Father, we pray that you would feed our souls, lead us in the broad pastures, the green, the green pastures beside the still waters, that we might drink deeply and be refreshed and be strengthened, that we might serve you faithfully in the coming week. Fill us up, we pray, with your truth, with your word. Bring conviction of sin. Bring encouragement in the gospel. We pray this 
In our Savior's name, amen. What does God do with guilt and grief? You might say, well, that's, that's easy. He forgives guilt. He brings comfort for grief. And, and that, that is true. Uh, he often does. He forgives guilt when it's confessed to him and he brings comfort uh, to those who are clinging to his promises. That's, that's the gospel. And it's precious to us. But, loved ones, his grace also works sometimes to press on the grief and to press on the guilt when, when the grief and the guilt aren't, aren't, aren't in faith, when they're not godly grief and godly guilt. Sometimes God comes by His grace and He has to press more on the grief and He has to press more on the guilt to lead us to repentance. Um, there, is a, there is a grief and a guilt that leads to repentance and there is a, there is a grief and a guilt that does not. We see this throughout the Scriptures. Um, examples, tragic examples of saints, uh, excuse me, not, not saints, of people who, who, were, who were part of the covenant community um, and they felt guilt, grieved over their sin, but it didn't lead them to repentance. Think of Esau. We're told in Hebrews twelve seventeen that he, um, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Esau was so ensnared with his idols, with the things that he loved in his heart, that he was not able to fundamentally turn away from them in faith and repentance to God and lay hold of the blessings of the covenant of grace. And he wept about it, but he didn't really change. King Saul, similar case. God rejects him as king over Israel. And Saul is grieved by it. But it's not a grief leading him to repentance. First Samuel 15 tells us that because Saul rejected God's word, thought he could play fast and loose with God's commands and adjust them to his convenience, uh, God had rejected him from being king over Israel. And Saul, in First Samuel 15, says that he repents, but Samuel tells him it's, it's too shallow. And he's lost the kingdom. And Samuel turns to leave. And, and Paul is, is so much in grief. He, he, catch, he tries to grab at Samuel to stop him from leaving him. And he tears the hem of his tunic. And Samuel says to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. He was grieved. He felt, he felt guilt. He felt, he felt sorrow for, 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 for his sin on some level. But was it deep enough? No, it wasn't. Then there's Judas, isn't there? After he's betrayed our Lord Jesus Christ, he can't live with himself, returns the money, throws it on before, the, before the, the, the Jewish authorities, and goes out and commits suicide. Couldn't live with what he'd done. But was it a godly grief? Did he turn in humble faith to Jesus Christ? No. In each case, each of these cases, the basic posture of the heart remained the same. Set on sin, set on self, not set on God. Self-pity was there. Uh, a, a guilt that you hadn't lived up to, to, to your own expectations for yourself, perhaps. Uh, some, some shame, but not a heart that had fundamentally broken before God and turned to Him in faith and repentance. And brothers and sisters, that makes all the difference. Um, 2 Corinthians 7.10, words we just read, godly grief produces 
repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. The larger catechism describes repentance unto life, which is what we're talking about, godly grief, repentance unto life. Question 76, it says this, Repentance unto life is a saving grace wrought in the heart of a sinner by the Spirit and the Word of God, whereby, out of the sight and sense, not only of the danger, but also the filthiness and odiousness of his sins, and upon the apprehension of God's mercy in Christ to such as are penitent, he so grieves for and hates his sin that he turns from them all to God purposing and endeavoring constantly to walk with Him in all the ways of new obedience. That is godly grief. We're not naturally good at it, are we? Um, In fact, um, it's impossible for us to have this kind of grief. Only the Spirit of God can give it. How how does the Spirit do this? How does God bring us when when, when this kind of repentance and and godly grief is impossible in ourselves, how does the Spirit sovereignly work it in us? What are the means He uses? He uses His Word. He uses the means of grace. And also, He often applies that Word through affliction with particular force and power. He, He rubs the salt of affliction into our wounds in order to clean out our self-pity and wake up our conscience and bring us to godly grief and genuine repentance. Um, Samuel Rutherford, Scottish Puritan, uh, 17th century theologian, writes in his letters about, about his own experience of God doing this to him, pressing, pressing on the wound, uh, cleaning the wound, uh, and bringing him to, to, to full, full repentance. Um, Samuel Rutherford had been imprisoned for his faithfulness to the gospel. And at first he complained under that cross. Um, But then he came to see, by the grace of God in Christ, that it was a blessing to bear that cross. That it it was a grace to him to have that affliction pressed hard on him. And he said this, he said, grace grows best in winter. Grace grows best in winter. And Genesis 42 is a study in that. God bringing His people who are unrepentant to a point of godly grief. And it's a call to us, brothers and sisters, to bring our consciences under the gaze of God and under under the grace of God and pray that He would convict us by His Spirit and give us godly grief that leads to true repentance. Two lessons I want to unpack from the text here for us tonight. Um, Number one is this. First lesson of the text is that God's providence orders our affliction so that we might learn godly grief. God's providence orders or orchestrates our affliction so that we might learn godly grief. As the chapter opens, verses 1 through 5, we get a picture, we get a window into uh, the family life of Jacob and his sons back in Canaan. And um, we, see, we see godless grief and guilt rather than godly grief here. In these first opening verses, Jacob and his sons are suffering under the famine. Uh, The famine that God had promised Joseph in Egypt is is spread across the whole region, and they're suffering from it too. And uh, it's not bringing out the best in Jacob and his sons, not yet. Um, Think of Jacob. Who is he? He's the patriarch. 
His father was Isaac. His grandfather was Abraham. He knows the promises. He's a living proof of the promises of God. And his life is a testimony of the faithful grace of God to him. And you'd think by now he's a, he's a, he's a seasoned saint who's learned to walk by faith and, um, and uh, to walk in, in hope in God. But as we look at him in these opening verses, it looks like, it looks like he is just living under this dark cloud of despair over the death that he, he thinks, the death of his son Joseph. It's been over a decade now since he lost Joseph. But he still seems paralyzed with grief from it. He mentions his, his loss of Joseph at the end of the chapter, verse 38. But even in these opening verses, it seems like there's this paralyzing grief that's hanging over him like a cloud. Um, and he doesn't seem to have learned anything from, from what's happened. Um, You'd think that he would have learned something about not showing favoritism after he lost Joseph. But he hasn't. He's just replaced. He's showing the same favoritism to, uh, to Benjamin, the son of his favorite wife, Rachel. And we see that he's afraid something might happen to Benjamin. He reminds me of the dad in Finding Nemo. Right? He doesn't want his son to leave the anemone because he's afraid something's going to happen to him. He's paralyzed with fear. Um, just like that. Um, Joseph, uh, excuse me, Jacob, he's happy to send the other ten sons to Egypt. Oh, go ahead. What you should have left yesterday, uh, but not Benjamin. Why? Because he's afraid something would happen to Benjamin. He speaks, sparsh, uh, he speaks so harshly to the other sons. Why are you standing around looking at each other? Get going. There's, e there's grain in Egypt. Get down there and get the grain from Egypt. So he's still showing favoritism, not seeming to walk by faith. Paralyzed by grief still. And then there's Jacob's sons, his ten sons. Why haven't they gone to Egypt yet? They're living in famine. They know there's grain in Egypt. Why don't they want to go down and get it? Why are they standing around looking at each other and not doing what needs to be done? Well, I think it's probably because they feel so guilty. There's that old guilt. Because Egypt, for them, it, it represents the scene of the crime in a sense. Um, they sold their brother into slavery into Egypt. And so for them to get on that road and go to Egypt means facing up to the guilt. It means digging up old guilt and, and, and feeling the shame of that again. And they don't want to. They haven't dealt with it. They haven't asked forgiveness for it. It's just been buried under layer or layer or layer uh, 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 of, of self-justification or, or, or what have you. But um, they don't want to face up to it, so they haven't gone. Um, so this is the situation. Jacob, his ten sons. Um, and the result is they're living far from God and far from the life of faithfulness that God desires them to be living. So what does God do, his covenant people in such a state as this? They need some winter weather. They need some affliction for, their, for, for his grace to grow in. And so this famine comes, and he does. He brings them to their knees. Literally, before Joseph, begging for food in Egypt. And brings us to verses 6 to 9, where we see that what is happening here is, is it's, it's the sovereign power of God and the orchestration of God that's driving this affliction in the lives of Jacob and Joseph's brothers. Um, they, they come down, Joseph's brothers come down to Egypt to buy grain. And as it happens, there's Joseph. They don't recognize him. He recognizes them. Um, but there's more that he recognizes that they don't yet. Um, 
And that is that the sovereign hand of God is what's, is what's working this. Um, Joseph, it says, uh, jo- Joseph, as he sees his brothers, remembers that dream he had uh, so many years ago. The dream that, they, that, that the moon and the stars were bowing down to him uh, uh, and the sun. And then that the, 11, the, the sheaves of grain were bowing down to his sheaf of grain in the field. That prophecy that he would be ruling over his brothers. And, um, and now as Joseph stands there, he sees this and he sees what's happening and he recognizes what? God has done it. That, that, that everything from the moment of that dream to this point, sovereign hand of God at work, writing the whole story. Every chapter, every paragraph, every, every word from the hand of God. He knows that God is the one who's done it all, that God raised him up from the pit out of slavery. And God is the one who brought the powerless, persecuted, oppressed Joseph to now sit on the right hand of the throne of Egypt. And God is the one who has brought his proud and oppressive brothers to their knees before him. This is how God works. See it all through the scriptures, don't we? Raises up the humble, brings low the proud, reverses the wisdom of the world. Notice this too here, seeing the providence of God at work here. That God does whatever it takes to bring His people, preserve His people by His grace, bring them to Himself. Um, Joseph's brothers, as we saw in previous chapters of Genesis, so desperately need repentance. So what does God do? He orchestrates this famine for their good. Even though they don't know it yet, this famine and eat everything that's happened to them to distress their family is God's loving design to bring them to repentance and, 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 and to faith in Him. All these things, the, the humbling things, the challenging things, the, the difficulty that they're suffering through are the gifts of God's covenant love for them. Brothers and sisters, we sing of God's love, don't we? Oh, love that will not let me go. What does that look like? Often, the love that continues to afflict us, to, to press us to the point where we see our need for Him. Brothers and sisters, learn to see the hand of God, the loving hand of God, behind every affliction in your life. And we should be careful not to jump to conclusions about the precise, detailed meaning of God's providences in our lives. God has not given us a revelation to interpret the precise meaning, per se, of every event in our lives. If we, if we get the flu this week, we shouldn't think, well, it's because I, I lost it with my kids. If we, you know, if I, if I car breaks down, I shouldn't think it's because I didn't keep the Sabbath last Sunday. Um, not necessarily. Uh, we don't see a one-for-one correspondence between this sin and that suffering. That's not what I'm saying here. Um, this is the error the disciples made. They were having this conversation with Jesus. The blind man, who sinned, Lord? This man or his parents, that he was born blind, Jesus says. Neither. Neither. John 9, 2. And yet, brothers and sisters, what we need to see then, not that, but, but this, that God's providence in our lives is full of purpose and has a point. And whatever else behind the mystery of his sovereign will is at work, you can always, brothers and sisters, be absolutely certain that the point of the affliction is to bind you more closely to Christ that it's to shape your life in the pattern of His life and to humble you and to bring you to know Him more. 
And so when you find yourself asking, why? Why did this have to happen? Why did I have to get sick? Why did he have to get sick? Why did the car have to break down? Why did we get hit with that bill that we can't pay? All these things. Why, why, why that thing happening in the world? Famine, wars, rumors of wars. Why? Um, what is God trying to teach me? He is teaching you to trust Him and to find your all and all in Him and to humble you before Him and, 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 and to, to rest in His fullness and sufficiency for you. Um, sometimes in affliction we're tempted to ask, don't I know enough? Am I not already humble enough? When we ask that question, it proves the point, doesn't it? No. No, you're not. Not yet. God has prescribed sometimes some winter weather for you, and He knows that you need it when He sends it. His goal is to cast your soul in the mold of Jesus Christ. Thomas Watson, a Puritan, said this, Affliction brings those sins to remembrance that before we buried in the grave of forgetfulness. When a man is in distress, now his sin comes fresh into his mind. Conscience makes a rehearsal sermon of all the evils that have passed in his life. Now his expense of precious time, his Sabbath-breaking, his slighting of the Word, come into his remembrance, and he goes out with Peter and weeps bitterly. Thus the rod gives wisdom. It shows the hidden evil of the heart and brings former sins to remembrance. That's why our God prescribes us winter weather. Bring the, bring, bring, bring the grief and the guilt to a head. So that we confess and we go to Him and then we receive fresh grace from Him. That's the first main lesson of the text. second one is this. Our absolute need for real repentance. Real, deep, genuine repentance. Tears aren't enough. Um, words aren't enough. Repentance is, is real change in your heart and in your habits, both. Um, it's easy to say, I'm sorry, and then you go right back to the way you were living before without really owning up to the guilt and how sinful you are and how much you need to change. Um, brothers and sisters, we don't need touch-up paint. We need a new foundation put in. And that's what God is at work doing. Um, when I was younger, I used to get frustrated with this part of the story of Joseph. Um, I, I used to think... well. This, this just seems dragged out. They go down. He doesn't, you know. The, I, I just figured they should go down. He should say, hey, I'm your brother. And they get back together again. Instead, it's dragged out over several chapters. And there's these delays. And, and he, he puts this test in place. And, and there's all this stuff that happens before they're finally reconciled. And I used to get frustrated with that when I was younger. Why couldn't it just be easier than that for them? Why did Joseph put them all through this? But what I was failing to see was the importance of genuine repentance. Joseph is testing them to see if they've really changed. To see if, if the grace of God has gotten hold of them. He, he's, he doesn't hold their sin against them, but he wants to see if they've really changed in their attitude towards their father, in their attitude towards their brother, Benjamin. And so he brings this test to them. First, he accuses them of being spies. Um, he's trying to get them to explain, tell their story, and to see what they say about themselves. It's, it's revealing here, uh, their answer to him. Uh, in verse 11, they say, to, they say to him, we are honest men. Uh, really? 
Maybe they are at this point. They're not spies. They're not there to spy out the land. But honest men, they don't tell them that they plotted to murder their brother and then sold him as a slave, knowing it would break their father's heart. Didn't tell him that. Didn't tell him that they then went back and lied to their father about it to cover up what they'd done. They didn't tell him about Judah's scandalous sin with his own daughter-in-law or about how Simeon and Levi lied to the entire city of Shechem and then put them all to death or how Reuben sinned with his father's concubine. It's quite a list. We are honest men. Now, I'm not saying that they should have laid out all their sordid past with this stranger they don't know. They're merely saying, we're not spies. But there's an irony to their words, isn't there? Um, Are they really honest men? Really men of integrity, upstanding men of integrity. Well, maybe they are now, maybe they're not. Joseph, how can he know? So he provides this this test uh, for them. First, he tests their love for their brother, uh, their brother Benjamin. Uh, he, he throws them in prison for three days. He tells them that unless they bring their brother Benjamin back with them, then they won't be any grain. No Benjamin, no bread. That's the deal he strikes. Um, he wants to see how they treat their father's favorite now. He wants to see how they treat his own brother now, uh, their half-brother. It, they bring him down. Is he going to see them still? Or is he going to see that they're still trying to 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 to, to persecute? This brother that they're trying to get ahead and, and, and that they're full of jealousy towards him and hatred towards him? Or are they going to show him that they've, um, that they've, that they, that they've uh, sought the grace of God and that, that they've repented of that? He needs to see that. Um, we see in the text here, verses 21 to 24, that this hits home for the brothers. Uh, as, as Joseph is applying this test to him, they, they're cut to the heart, aren't they? Their consciences wake up and, they're, and, they're, and they're, they feel the conviction of, of, of real guilt. All the weight of their past comes crashing down on their backs. They say, we are truly guilty concerning our brother. For we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us and we would not hear. Therefore, his, this distress has come upon us. Finally, they can feel God himself pressing their guilt home to their hearts. And they recognize it, and they are truly grieved by it. We'll see in the coming chapters, it's a grief that leads, indeed, to repentance, a full repentance. So Joseph tests them there. He does another test as well. I think he's testing their, uh, their love for money. Remember when they sold him into slavery? Um, why'd they do it? They can make some money off their brother. We don't just have to kill him. We can get rid of him and make some money on it. So they sell him into slavery for some, from sil- for some silver, 20 shekels of, of silver. They loved the silver more than their brother. And so now here's a test of their integrity. Joseph sends them back with money put back in the mouths of their sacks. They're, go- they're going back to their father. The deal is they're going to bring Benjamin up with them. Um, but-, but Joseph sends them back with, this, uh, w- with-, with the money put back in their sacks to test their integrity. How are they going to handle this? What are they going to do with this? Verse 28 shows us a good sign. As they see it, they are uh, distressed by it. They feel their guilt. They see God's hand. They, they, they recognize this is God himself working in us and working on us. 
And they are going, as we'll see later on, they're going to return this payment and show their integrity. The third test in the chapter, though, this is a test that really comes from God himself. And it's actually not to the brothers, it's to Jacob. Um, They come back. um, They come back and they tell Jacob the news. Simeon's still in Egypt, in a prison. Um, And and we're not getting him back till we bring Benjamin down. And we're not getting any more grain till we bring Benjamin down uh, to Egypt with us. And so God is bringing a test to Jacob, very similar to the one he brought to Abraham. Genesis chapter 22. What was the test there? Give me your son, your only son, whom you love. Um, This is the test for Jacob. Will you give up your son, Benjamin, your only son, whom you love? Jacob's response when he hears this is, um, he says, my son shall not go down with you. For his brother is dead and he is left alone. If any calamity should befall him along the way in which you go, then you would bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. For, for Jacob, brothers and sisters, Benjamin is indispensable to his life and his joy and his peace and his happiness. Without Benjamin, uh, Jacob's life loses purpose, loses meaning, and becomes an empty wasteland. That's how, that's how you should feel about God. So there's an idol in the throne of Jacob's heart. God, God is testing Jacob as well. Who will be first in Jacob's life? Will, 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 will he trust God and allow his son to go? Come back next week. <laughs> but for now, brothers and sisters, in his providence, um, this is how God tests us as well. Have you really turned away from your sin? Are you growing in grace? Is your obedience a burst of enthusiasm or is it the real thing? Are the old idols still stubbornly hanging on to your heart? This is what God does to us in our afflictions. He makes us to feel the weight of guilt and bring home to our hearts real grief. To teach us real repentance. Brothers and sisters, don't be a stubborn student in the school of Christ. As he he disciplines you, as he trains you through affliction, respond quickly to his correction. Humble yourself before him and bless the rod that he disciplines you with. And and now in closing, just two two encouragements, brothers and sisters. We've been speaking about affliction, the way God presses guilt home and grief home to bring us to godly grief, true repentance. Um, Two two encouragements to you. Um, Number one, remember who is testing you. Your elder brother, our Lord Jesus Christ, full of love for you, forgiven you already. He's the one pressing the test on you. Remember that. He's not doing it vindictively or angrily or vengefully. He's doing it out of his love for you. Our Lord Jesus, your elder brother. Second, remember who took the test before you did. Who who went under that affliction first? Who went before you? Our Lord Jesus, your elder brother. He learned obedience through the things he suffered. He learned humility under the rod. He learned affliction and patience and faithfulness under it. And so he gives you his record of righteousness in that. And he also, brothers and sisters, gives you his spirit. He gives you his spirit, the same spirit that strengthened and sustained his obedience to sustain you and yours. So hold fast to your Savior brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, the rich wisdom of your word. 
We pray that you would help us to sit under the rod of our Lord Jesus Christ, to learn the lessons of affliction, and and to learn true repentance. We pray that we would keep our eyes on our elder brother, our faithful and loving Savior. We pray this in his precious name. Amen.